and informative for the congregation. This morning on the TV news, our president was shown leaving the Marine One helicopter. The Marine enlisted man at the front steps saluted. Uh, the president returned the salute, and as he, that is the president, walked away, the Marine soldier executed a right face to stand facing the president's back, something that was not done in eight years of the Clinton presidency. The traditional Marine Corps mark of respect was rendered to the new president. The Marines' respectful facing maneuver goes back to the days of sailing ships with rigging. Then the Marine orderly to the ship's captain always faced him, no matter the direction of the captain's movement, so as to be ready to receive an order from the captain. Who says the enlisted force could not withhold respect from an individual who didn't deserve their respect as a person? For eight years they did, and for eight years Clinton and his civilian advisors didn't know enough about the military they were commanding to realize what, what the enlisted Marines were actually doing, or rather not doing. I keep thinking about the argument that was uh, you kept hearing eight years ago that character didn't matter. How ironic. Well, before we get started in the Word this evening, let's make sure we are in fellowship, ready to stay the Word and focus on the Word. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we do thank you once again that we can gather together as believers in order to study your word, in order to learn more about your plan for history and how you work and how we are to think about life, and that we might have a perspective on everything that, that goes far beyond just our, our own immediate circumstances. Father, we thank you for a nation where we still have the freedoms to gather together as a body of believers to worship your word. And even though, though many of those freedoms become more and more eroded as the years go by, we, we still have those. Father, we pray for our president. We pray for leadership in Congress. pray as well for state and local leadership that they might have the wisdom to make right decisions in light of so many of the uh, problems and difficult things that, that face this nation. But above all, Father, we pray that there might be a uh, resurgence of positive volition. There's so many believers in this country that seem to just slide along or, or they're more concerned with their own emotions and their own feelings and their own experiences and they've, they, they've given up thinking or feeling. We just pray that there might be some level of an awakening among people as to what the real issues are and that uh, we might see this nation once again return to a focus of where their, their value system is based on something more substantial than uh, what lines their pocketbook or what seems to make things better for right now. But Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we might understand the things we study and be challenged by them, encouraged by your control of history, and that our confidence in your word might be strengthened. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me again to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, and we are going to uh, continue our study of Daniel's 70 weeks. Now, before we get started, I've got a couple of announcements to go over. 
There's a meeting for Sunday school teachers scheduled for Sunday, March the 10th, a week from this Sunday, right after church. So all teachers need to make uh, note of that in preparations to attend the meeting. And also we need someone to volunteer for Wednesday evening uh, class for the pre-K through third grade, uh, beginning in two, two weeks. You need to see uh, Ernie Dillon, our Sunday school superintendent, or Ann Birch about that. And it's a great opportunity. I know of at least one person in the congregation who wants to take on that responsibility. And uh, unfortunately, uh, logistics make that impossible because of how far away they live. However, they have a job interview this next week, so we ought to put that on the prayer list in the hopes that um, the Lord would make that possible for them to move closer and be able to minister to the congregation in that way. All kinds of things going on these days. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We've been looking at the whole issue of God's plan. We started off uh, in terms of uh, the present dispensation, which is the church age. The church age is distinct from all other periods in human history because of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to each and every believer during this age. This is, I think, the hallmark. Not just the fact that, that for the first age in history we're looking back to the cross. The tribulation period and the future millennial period will also look back to the cross. But what is unique about this age is the every individual believer is a member of the royal family of God. Every single believer has... Um, is a royal priest, has access to God. Every believer has equal access to God and equal opportunity for spiritual growth because every believer possesses the same thing. We all possess uh, uh, the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and we all possess the Word of God. We have a completed canon of Scripture. The church age ends at an indetermined time in the future when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds to take all church-age believers, living and dead, carnal and spiritual, to, to heaven. That is followed by the seven-year tribulation, which concludes with the second coming of Christ, after which he establishes his kingdom, called the Messianic kingdom, or also called the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth, and that ends with the great white throne judgment the destruction of the present heavens and earth, and then the creation of the new heavens and earth. The overview of this time is that the church age, once again, ends with the rapture. On earth, we're going to have a seven-year tribulation. That's our focus this week and next week, is on this seven-year tribulation. That's what's taking place on the earth all after the church is removed. Second uh, Thessalonians tells us that when the restrainer that this occurs after the restrainer is removed, and that's the Holy Spirit. So we know from that, or can infer from that, that during the tribulation period, believers do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the bat- any of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, and, and it's a return to to I- the age of Israel. While that is going on on the earth, in heaven there is the judgment seat of Christ. This is the time of evaluation for every believer on the basis of how they advance to spiritual maturity during this age and fruit produced by means of God the Holy Spirit during this age. 
after the evaluation seat of Christ, then there will be the wedding ceremony of the bride of Christ, the marriage of the Lamb. And following that, the second advent or second coming when Jesus Christ returns bodily to the earth and we as church-age believers, as the bride of Christ, will accompany him. There will be a judgment at that time of all tribulation believers. Those, I mean, of all, tribu- of all those who survive the tribulation. Tribulation believers who survive will go into the millennium and repopulate the earth. They do not receive new bodies. This is, uh, I think, one of the, we, we did a little exercise the last time showing that uh, those who, are, who survive the tribulation are either believers or unbelievers. Unbelievers go to judgment, go to Hades. Those who survive go into the millennium. And the millennium has to be repopulated by somebody who still has a physical body capable of procreation. And since those who return with Christ have resurrection bodies and are not capable of procreation, that indicates that there must be some group that survives the tribulation with a mortal body. And you only get that through an understanding of a pre-tribulation rapture. There's so much discussion about whether the rapture occurs before the tribulation or following the tribulation. There are different arguments which we went through, and that is one of them. The millennial kingdom then ends with the great white throne judgment and then the creation of the new heavens and new earth. And the, uh, after the great white throne judgment, all unbelievers are consigned to eternity in the lake of fire. Now, one of the interesting things that, that's happening today, it, it, it's, it's just sometimes just astounds me as to how evangelical, quote, evangelicalism ha- is a changing. While I was gone on my trip to L.A. last week, I got a chance to uh, listen to some tapes from one of the uh, men who addressed the Conservative Theological Society that met in Fort Worth last summer. I didn't make the meeting because we were over in Kazakhstan at the time. And he was just going through how, um, and he had a quite a long list of definitions for hermeneutics and interpretation. Now, most of you were, have been here on second hour on Sunday morning when I spent about three weeks going through different principles of interpretation and hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is, are the principles of interpretation, and interpretation is the application of those principles to the Scriptures. And interpretation focuses on the fact that the uh, uh, ultimate meaning of the text is determined by what the author intended, not by what the reader brings to the text, not uh, a passage of Scripture doesn't have multiple meanings or two or three meanings, but it only has one meaning. That has been the standard definition of grammatical, historical interpretation for hundreds of years. That was the, the definition of grammatical, historical interpretation when I went through seminary was that we were to interpret the Scripture literally the plain sense of Scripture, that did not mean that we excluded figures of speech, but that, that figures of speech were to be interpreted as they were literally understood and um, in, in a plain sense of language. We use figures of speech all the time. And we talk about these phrases like um, literal interpretation, historical grammatical interpretation, and we still, as this congregation, still use those terms in their sort of more traditional sense. However, according to this tape, the speaker was uh, Dr. Robert Thomas from uh, Master's Seminary out in California. 
he went through, he, he quoted definitions of hermeneutics, interpretation, exegesis, and application, four critical terms. And he quoted definitions as defined in about 10 or 12 different current books on Bible study methods, on interpretation, books used in seminaries, books written by seminary professors at places like Dallas, Trinity, uh, Talbot, Western Seminary in Denver, uh, places like that, a few other places. Fascinating. Nobody means the same thing by historical grammatical interpretation anymore. Some of the men say there are multiple meanings. Some say that the meaning is determined by, that the meaning of hermeneutics is to focus on how the text meets the person in contemporary society. Uh, that also shows the impact of postmodern thinking. I was just absolutely uh, amazed and appalled at how far we have, we have drifted uh, as, quote, evangelicals. But what hit me again while I was out in California, Wayne House, who's a former professor of mine, a close friend of mine. He, he taught at Dallas for a while and is now at uh, Faith Seminary in Tacoma, Washington. But Wayne and I were talking about the upcoming Evangelical Theological Society meeting in November, which will be held in Colorado Springs mid-November. One of the key issues that's coming up this time is a view called, the, called Open Theism. Now, the reason I go into all of this with you is that you all need to be aware of what's happening in our world. I mean, one of the problems in most churches is pastors never educate their congregations, and so the pastor leaves. I'm not planning on leaving. The, the pastor leaves, or they listen to somebody on Christian radio talking about something, and they hear certain words that they hear their pastor use, and so they, they feel comfortable with that, and they... they uh, they don't realize they're used differently or they mean something different today. And so before long, they sort of become captured by some uh, fuzzy thinking or false doctrine. Uh, also, uh, eventually, um, I may go somewhere. Lord may take me home. We never know. Uh, you may leave here, as one person did. In fact, one of our members who recently moved from here called me on uh, Saturday He'd been looking for a church. They'd gone to one for a while. He had interviewed the pastor. pastor had used the right terminology and seemed to say a lot of the right things. However, after about a month of being at that church, uh, he began to realize that this pastor didn't mean by those phrases and those terms what he had always been taught. So, see, you may be here another month or two or a year or two, and then you get moved somewhere else and have to go through that same problem. So we have to understand that we live in a time where things are changing. Now, I know I seem to be rambling a little bit, but I'm going to bring all this, all this together. This view of open theism, it's also called the open view of God. I've mentioned it once or twice. Uh, is the idea that God does not know the future. He is, quote, open to the future. God is surprised. God does not control things because, and where they're going, this is Arminianism gone to seed. Arminianism puts all of its emphasis on man um, and man's reasoning, and, and it's the opposite of Calvinism. Well, this is hyper-Arminianism. It's also what I consider to be liberalism, that God really doesn't know the future. Now, the Evangelical Theological Society has as its doctrinal statement that, that the only thing we ha all have to agree on is the Bible is the infallible and inerrant Word of God in the original languages. But in, um, 
uh, but there's a number of people who have been floating into this open theism. And, you know, I just consider it so absurd that I don't pay attention to it. And I got back from California because when I talked to Wayne, Wayne said, well, this is going to be a big issue at ETS next year, and the decision is going to be made whether or not to include open theists in evangelicalism. In fact, the executive committee of the ETS made a decision uh, and has voted on a proposition that we that goes like this, something like this. I'm quoting from memory. We believe that that uh, in light of our view of the scriptures, that the scriptures teach that the knowledge of God is full, complete, and infallible with regard to all events, past, present, and future of uh, free moral agents, which is a good definition of omniscience, uh, one in which these guys can't hold to. Well, it seems that I've heard this now secondhand, so I'm not going to say any names, but I've heard it secondhand through three different people, each of whom heard it from a different faculty member at Dallas Seminary, that there are two Old Testament faculty members at Dallas who are teaching uh, open theism. They're not fired. It's going to be quite interesting to see if the ETS, which only has one doctrinal proposition everybody has to agree with, if ETS declares open theism heresy and Dallas doesn't remove these men from their position, uh, it's going to be real interesting to see Dallas making, keeping these men on as faculty. Then back, I'm making a circle through things, back to Bob Thomas's tape. Thomas is going through some of the issues related to gospel studies today and hermeneutics, and these get into some extremely intricate and sophisticated arguments because what has happened in hermeneutics is that instead of relying on the Scriptures and developing our view of hermeneutics from the Scriptures, men have gone off to... Uh, in fact, one person has made the correct observation that the reason conservative and liberal seminaries are getting closer and closer together, and notice when I say liberal, I'm going to hold my hand here, it's not going to move. This hand represents conservative seminaries, and it's going to move closer and closer to liberal seminaries is because both schools are sending their faculty to the same institutions for their PhDs. And that's one reason that the gap between conservatives and liberals at the seminary level is, is uh, disappearing. Why we have to support, through prayer and financial gifts, Chafer Seminary. I, in fact, I had uh, lunch with George Meisinger while I was out in Southern California, and they're doing quite well. He wanted me to tell everybody hi. And this was part of our discussion is that in the realm of hermeneutics, men at all of these major schools, Denver, Trinity, Dallas, are all teaching views of um, the Gospels. I'm using methodology to interpret the Gospels. It comes out of liberalism. Called, it's called historical criticism so that they even uh, go so far as to suggest that the writers of the Gospels... Uh, wrote the intent or a theological interpretation of what Jesus said rather than his exact words. That leads to a number of problems. All of this is to say that we're under attack by Satan. There is so much false doctrine going on today, and most people don't even know where it comes from to recognize it when they hear it from the pulpit. And we even have seminary professors, our seminary presidents, excuse me, who continue to raise enormous amounts of money from vast groups of, of uh, supporters of their institutions 
still claiming that their theology hasn't changed since the days of the founder, when that is not true. And on the other hand, those same individuals continue to speak loudly and strongly about the importance of integrity and ethics in a pastoral ministry and among Christian leaders. I mean, the dichotomy and the internal contradiction is appalling, absolutely appalling. And, And when I look at this, it's almost depressing to realize how few people are concerned about biblical truth anymore. And all of this ultimately comes down to any kind of understanding of the Scriptures. I mean, how can anybody stand in the pulpit and teach prophecy if God is not sure of the future? If God can be surprised, if God's knowledge is not complete? Well, all of that is just to show that we are in a mess and Second Thess indicates that a number of other passages indicate that apostasy is going to continue to increase as the major trend throughout the church age. And we certainly see evidence of that today. Well, we have been looking at prophecy and we've gone through the prophecy related. We've gone through the rapture. We've gone through the doctrines related to the rapture. And last time we began our study of the tribulation looking at Daniel chapter 9. And I want to come back to that. I went through it so rapidly at the end last time. I want to slow down a little bit and go over it again. Daniel, Daniel's 70 weeks of prophecy. This is one of the most profound prophetic statements and one of the most precise in all of Scriptures. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel 9, verse 24. Now, we've looked at the context uh, of Daniel 9. Daniel is praying. Uh, in the early part of the book, it tells us that in the first year of the reign of Darius, uh, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, he's made king over the Chaldeans, Daniel is studying Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, he recognizes from looking at a, several different passages that God has decreed 70 years of discipline for Israel. And so those 70 years are viewed as literal years. This is one of the most important principles for understanding the interpretation of prophecy. That if when, pro- when passages include both fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecy, if the fulfilled aspect was accomplished or brought to completion literally, then to be consistent, that which is unfulfilled must also be literal. And just as those 70 years were literal, so the 70 in Daniel 29, 24 and following must be understood to be literal. In 605 B.C., the first group of prisoners were taken out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem did not fall. The temple was not destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar until 586 B.C. Let me put a timeline up here on the overhead so we can picture these, these events. In 605 B.C., you had the first assault, the first military invasion by Nebuchadnezzar of Israel. And at that time, you had one group of young men, young aristocrats, taken out and taken to Babylon. In this group, you have the young man Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then, 
again in 597 B.C. you had a second invasion by Nebuchadnezzar and in that group Ezekiel the prophet Ezekiel is removed from the land and he's taken to Babylon and then in 586 you have the final assault and destruction of the temple and destruction of Jerusalem then in 536 you have the first decree from Cyrus for the Jews to return to the land. And they do so and lay the foundation for the temple in 535. So from 605 to 536 is 70 years because you count 605 as year one. That's how they counted it. We would not count that as year one. They would. They would count 605 as year one. That's one of the reasons you get into the... um, some of the chronological difficulties is because they, you know, when we uh, count things, let's say if, um, if somebody took office on December 25th, we would say that 2001, if they took office December 25th of 2000, we would say that 2001 was their first year of reign of office. According to the way they counted, they call, had something called the accession year, and they counted that. So that all of 2000 would be considered their first year. Well, somebody else was in power from January 1st till December 24th. That would also be considered their last year. So you have an overlap. You have the same year counted twice. But that's how they counted things. So one of the reasons you get into chronology problems is we don't always count things the same way they did in the ancient world. So that's year one. That gives you the 70 years of captivity, and then they return to the land. That's the, the, uh, that's the foundation. So that's what Daniel is looking at. And while he is praying and he goes through his prayer, notice how he prays starting in uh, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Notice that confession is always a principle for the believer in every dispensation to admit or acknowledge sin. And here da- Daniel is operating in the role of mediator for the nation. And he is confessing the nation's sins. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from Thy commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to Thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in Thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Once you notice in verse 5, he says, We've sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've acted wickedly, and rebelled. This is ongoing in Israel's life, but he's focusing on their past, and that sin continues. He asks for forgiveness in verse 9, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings, which He set before us through His servants, the prophets. The nation has transgressed in verse 11, transgressed thy law, and all of these words are picked up again and repeated in the prophecy given in verse 24. So he prays that God would return, restore them to the land. Now, God gives a unique answer starting in verse 24. And this comes through the angel Gabriel who appears to him um, while he is praying. And that is identif- he's identified in verse 21. But let's look at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. 
to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. Notice, he's just been confessing their sin, their transgression, and their iniquity. Now he is told that this 70 weeks is going to bring all of their sin to a conclusion. Notice also it says these 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. The word for decree is the uh, nifal of the word which means to divide or to determine. I mean, 70 weeks have been divided out of history or determined for your people and your holy city. So this prophecy is not related to the church. It's not related to Gentiles. And it's not related to the church age. It is related to your people and to the holy city. Now we need to break it. We look at the purposes there to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. We'll come back and look at those again. It says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plows and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now let's look at this chronology. He says that there are... He divides it into two periods of time. The 70 periods. Now, in the Hebrew, it's Shavuim, Shavuim, which means literally 70 sevens or 70 heptads. Now, this could, of course, possibly mean 70 weeks or 70 months. Or, but none of that fits any of the chrono chronology. So it has to be viewed in terms of years. So if you take 70 years and multiply that times 7, it comes out to be 490 years. This is divided further into tech, in the text into three groups. Look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. There's a seven-week period plus a 62-week period. Now, those are connected grammatically in the text. It's real important to notice this. They're connected grammatically in the text. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The reason it's broken down indicates something. What it, under, what it breaks down is 7 times 7. There's a 49-year period that is related to struggle and building of the, of the city. And the 62 weeks then is 62 times 7 is 424 and I think 2 times 7 is 14, 6 times 7 is 42, 43. 434 and 49, you add that together, 434 and 49, you come up with 483 years. Now, if you subtract 483 from the total 490, you end up with seven years that are not included in this initial period. It the text talks about these, this first seven-week and 62-week or 69-week period and stops. 
So there is a break in the text between the 69th week and the 70th week. This is important. The first two are connected grammatically. Then there's a break. It talks about it. That's what, what, what will happen is people will say, well, how can you come along and say there is a, a break or a parenthesis or the older dispensationalists use the word an intercalation between the 69th week and the 70th week, and it is suggested even in the very grammar and breakdown of the passage. So in those first 69 weeks, we're told that it will be built again, the city's rebuilt. It's not talking about the temple. It's not talking about return to the land. It is talking about the city being built again with plaza and moat. That indicates that the walls are up and the, there is the, it's talking about the city. So it says, you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree. So the starting point, what kicks this off, is there is going to be a decree to rebuild the city. Not a decree to go back to the land, not a decree to rebuild the temple, but a decree to rebuild the city. Now, there are several different decrees that took place related to Israel in the ancient world. Let's go back to our timeline. In 580, or excuse me, 536, you have the first decree from Cyrus for the people to go back to the land. Then in 458 B.C., there is a second decree, and this is when Ezra goes back, and that relates to rebuilding, uh, working on the temple. And that, the first decree was given by Cyrus, the great. Second decree is by Artaxerxes, and then he issues a third decree in 444 B.C., to Nehemiah. This is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2. And it is that decision, that decree by Artaxerxes to send it, to, to authorize Nehemiah to go back and to rebuild the walls that is the beginning point of, of this time clock. The time clock of Daniel's 70 weeks. So the first 69 weeks relates to Christ's first coming because it is at the end of that that we're told in verse 26, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And then it says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. Now the interesting thing is there's a clear break in the text. The 62 weeks end, sometime after that, it doesn't say how long, it doesn't say right away, but it's saying that sometime after that, the Messiah is cut off and subsequently, the prince who, of the people who is to come, and that refers to Rome, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that occurred in 70 A.D. when the Romans uh, conquered the rebellious province of Judea, destroyed the temple, and that's when you had the holdout at the stronghold of Masada down by the Dead Sea. So the first 69 weeks relates to Christ's first coming, but there is a gap. And then the final week of years, that final seven-year period, relates to the preparation of Christ's second coming. Now let's look at the overall chart here to see how that breaks down. The decree to restore, the decree to restore took place 
on March the 5th, 444 B.C. Scholars have taken all the dates. We know when that occurred. It was on the, really it was on the 1st of Nisan, which is the Jewish month that takes place in roughly April, March on our calendar. Scholars have taken the old uh, Augustan calendar that uh, the Romans had, transferred the dates over to a Gregorian calendar, and then updated it uh, in terms of a modern sense. So March the 5th, 444 B.C., you have Artaxerxes' decree recorded in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. If you figure all of this up, it comes out to approximately 173,880 days. Now, the reason we know that is because on a, in the ancient world, they operated on a 360-day solar year calendar, not a 365-day calendar like we have today. And so you take 483 and you multiply it by 360 and you come out with 173,880 days. Then you sit down and you start your computations related to March the 5th. 69 times 7 times 360 equals 173,880 days. Add... From March 5th, 444 B.C., you add that, and you come to March the 30th, A.D. 33. Now, for verification, you can back-calculate. From 444 B.C. to 33 A.D. is 476 years on a straight calendar. Remember, you don't have a year zero, so you take that out. 476 years times our current 365 and a quarter days per year comes to 173,855 days. Plus the days between March 5th and March 30th are 25 days, and that adds up to 173,880 days. This is one of the most phenomenal prophecies in all of the Bible. And this shows us that God is a God who knows the future and controls history. Nothing happens by chance. There's no such thing as pure chance in God's timetable. God is able to control history while at the same time allowing man volition within the framework of his sovereignty. Now, the 360 days, how do we come up with that? In Daniel 9.27... Notice, we, let's look down. It says, He, that is the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, one seven-year period. But in the middle of that week, he will put a stop to sacrifice. So a half a week, then, is what's mentioned there. The, the, the week is cut in half, three and a half and three and a half, in Daniel 9, 27. Now, other passages, for example, in Daniel 7, verse 25, Daniel 12, verse 7, and Revelation 12, 14, break down the tribulation into a phrase called time, times, and a half a time. Time is one, times, plural, is two, and a half a time. You add that up, you get three and a half. In Revelation 12.6 and 11.3, that same period of time is referred to as 1,260 days. So if you, it's also called 42 months, and Revelation 11.2 and Revelation 13.5. Notice Revelation 11.2, it's 42 months. 
Revelation 11.3, the very next verse, is 1,260 days. So if you divide that, you come up with a 30-day month. And if you take three and a half years, divide it all out, you come up with 360 days per calendar year. Now this is it's just incredible to see how precise this prophecy is because it was on... Uh, on that March the 30th was Palm Sunday, the day of the triumphal entry when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And it was approximately three days later that he was crucified on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That's the first advent. There's no prophecy in Scripture that is that precise. And as many people have noted, everything that we hold to in terms of dispensationalism and pre-trib rapture really hangs more on this one passage than any other single passage in all of Scripture. Now, the text says that there are six reasons for this. This is back in verse 24. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make atonement for iniquity. The it, it, you can divide it into three or two groups of three each. The fourth is to bring in everlasting righteousness. Fifth, to seal a vision and prophecy. And sixth, to anoint the most holy place. Now, the first three, as I said last time, I want to make a refinement. I had the opportunity to do some more study on this passage. The first three were accomplished potentially at the cross. Last time I made the statement that the first three were accomplished in the first advent. They were in the sense that Christ died on the cross for sin and made atonement. But remember, 70 weeks have been decreed for your, your people and your holy city. This is all related to Israel, not the church. The first three did, were not accomplished. Israel did not accept Jesus as Messiah. And it, it, the, their sin, their rejection of God, their violation of God's law has not ended. These six purposes are all completed at the end of the tribulation period. They are all related to Israel. And as we go into this, we'll see that in Daniel chapter 12, one of the purposes for the tribulation is to break the power of Israel, to break their rebelliousness. And it is going to take something as horrible as the tribulation to finally get their attention for them to return as a nation to accept Jesus as Messiah. So these six purposes, even though the basis was established at the cross, these six purposes are not accomplished until Jesus Christ returns at the second advent. It is then the transgression, the sin, the iniquity spoken of here is Israel's rejection of God, Israel's rejection of the Messiah. And it is not until the end of the tribulation that Israel as a whole turns to, turns to God and accepts Jesus Christ as Messiah and they call for him to deliver them when they're down in Basra across the Jordan and only a third of all Jews have survived to that point in the tribulation and it's at that point that the leaders call for them to turn to God and to cry out to the Messiah to come and deliver them and that is when Jesus Christ comes. The second three, bringing in everlasting righteousness, has to do with the righteous rule. He is called right, the righteous branch of Jesse, the establishment of the millennial kingdom. 
sealing the fifth principle, the fifth purpose to seal up vision and prophecy takes place when because all of the prophecy related to new covenant promises, Davidic promise promises, all the, these prophecies come to completion and are fulfilled at this point, and to anoint the most holy place has to do with the rebuilding of the millennial temple. Now, this isn't the same temple that will be there during the tribulation, but there has to be a tribulation temple built for apostate Israel in order for the abomination of desolation to take place, which is mentioned in verse 27 of our passage. And he, that is the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many. The many refers to Israel for one week. But in the middle of that week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. So there is a return to the operation of the Mosaic law and Mosaic sacrifices, Levitical sacrifices in the tribulation temple. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And in Matthew 24, when Jesus refers to this, in Matthew 24:15, he calls it the abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist sets up an idol to himself in the, uh, in the temple, that he will be worshipped as God. And that temple will be destroyed in the uh, battle at the, the Armageddon campaign and all of the violence that occurs at the end of the tribulation and then a new temple will be built in the tribulation, and we'll look at that next time. Now, the importance for this is it provides for us a tremendous sense of confidence. First of all, we do not live in a world where chance is operative. It is in a small sense, but not in a large scale. God is in control of history. Jesus cannot destroy himself. We can't destroy ourselves through global warming. We can't destroy ourselves through environment. We may make ourselves miserable, but we, may, we will not destroy planet Earth or the human race. It is impossible. And that events will unfold as God has planned for them to occur. We are living in an intercalation of parenthesis right now, so none of these things are taking place. And what kicks it off is not the rapture, what kicks it off is the, the, when the Antichrist makes a covenant with the many for one week. And that occurs after the rapture. So we don't know who the Antichrist will be. We, will, we may know him. He may be on the scene as a political leader or a national leader or a business leader. Uh, if the rapture occurs in our lifetime, the rapture generation may have knowledge of him as an individual, but they will not know him as the Antichrist. He is not revealed as the Antichrist until this point. That's the first clue that this guy will be the, is the Antichrist is that he makes, establishes this peace treaty with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. Since we'll all be in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ uh, last week, interesting question. And that is, is the tribulation a distinct dispensation our conclusion of Israel. Because the Mosaic Law, Christ was the end of the Mosaic Law, so how could that, um, how then could Israel, or how then could it be a conclusion of the age of Israel? And this is why, one of the reasons I make the kind of distinction I do 
on the chart on the overhead between the age and individual dispensations. See, the age, we have an age of the Gentiles from creation to Abraham, and then we have an age of Israel from the call of Abraham because at that point God quits dealing directly with Gentiles. From the point of Genesis 12 on, God, content, God restricts himself to dealing through the Jews. So even though they're not a nation yet, even though they haven't given the law, it, the age of Israel begins. The age of Israel is divided into two groups, two, two periods, the dispensation of the patriarchs from Abraham to Moses and the dispensation of the law from, from Moses to the advent of Jesus Christ and the beginning of the dispensation of the Messiah. But notice, even the dispensation of the Messiah is still part of the age of Israel because it is not until Jesus Christ is crucified that, there is, that the dividing wall is torn as symbolized by the ripping of the veil in the Holy of Holies. So the age of the Messiah is still part of the age of Israel, but it is distinct from the age of the law. Now, the reason I'm making this point is because so often in traditional dispensationalism, they don't make the kind of distinctions that I'm making here between the broader ages and the subcategories of the dispensations. And I think that has led to a lot of um, confusion in some of these points and misunderstanding of some points. When Paul... when uh, uh, Gabriel reveals this to Daniel. He says, the 70 weeks are decreed for you and your people. That doesn't mean it's part of the dispensation of the law because the law ended at the cross. But it is decreed for your people Israel. And just as the age of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and the period from the death of Joseph up to the call of, of Moses, just as that period did not have Israel under the law, the... Uh, future age of the tribulation will not have Israel under the law. But it is still part of God's working through Israel. What makes it distinct is the fact that it is uh, that the law ended at the cross and the Holy Spirit uh, came in the, um, in the church age. And that separates it out. So the age of Israel is going to look back to uh, the cross Sanctification is not going to be based on walking by the Spirit because they're not going to have the personal uh, ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in the tribulation like they do now. So it will go back to a system of sanctification based on um, the faith rest drill. So that's how the tribulation fits in as a completion of Old Testament uh, promises and, and prophecies. Now, the second, that, that all was related, as we started last week, with the terminology related to the tribulation. Point number one was Daniel's 70th week. Now, the second term that is often used for the tribulation is a term called the day of the Lord. And that's a term that is um, confusing to a lot of people. Let me make several points about the day of the Lord to help you understand what this means. First of all, the term Day of the Lord emphasizes special interventions of God in human history. It is used in a non-technical sense in the Old Testament to refer to several different events when God uh, intervened in a 
judging way in the history of Israel. So it emphasizes interventions of God in history, his victory over his enemies, his sovereignty over the universe. The term refers to both a time of judgment and a time of blessing. It refers to both a time of judgment and a time of blessing. And during the current age, uh, and it usually relates to a visible expression of the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, in the Old Testament, this is a, another aspect we really haven't gotten into a whole lot, and I've saved it until we get to the millennium. But in the Old Testament, you have two different expressions of the kingdom of God. The first occurs in the Garden of Eden, in perfect environment when God is ruling over the earth, and then there's the fall. Then you have the presence of God on the earth up to the flood. This is indicated by two things. First of all, in Genesis chapter 5, you have a situation that is not considered abnormal. Enoch walks with God, and he was not. I I love the way the King James puts it. He walked with God just one day. He was out walking with God as he did every day. And they just walked right off into heaven. Enoch did not go through any kind of physical death whatsoever. He just sort of walked right off into heaven with the Lord. He had such close fellowship. That indicates that the physical, visible presence of God on the earth prior to the flood was not abnormal. Also, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, it states that in the King James Version... When God looks out and sees the wickedness of man and sees that the, the uh, fallen angels have taken the daughters of men for wives, uh, God looks out and says, My spirit will not strive with man forever. Now, the word spirit, which is the Hebrew word um, ruach, R-U-A-C-H, is not a, always a technical term for the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's not that way even in the New Testament. You always have to look in context. And sometimes it can just be simply a reference to himself. And the word there is strive. But that word that's in the Hebrew that's translated strive is a hapax. That means, hapax legomena. That means it's only used one time in the Old Testament. We have no other usages in, of, of that word in Hebrew anywhere. So that means it's very hard to figure out what that word means. So what do you do? Well, when you're doing, in the science of lexicography, when you're doing word studies, you go to similar languages to see if there is a cognate or related word in Aramaic or Akkadian or Ugaritic and to see if you can discover what it means in those languages. Well, there's a cognate word to to this that's used in Ugaritic and in Akkadian, and it means to abide in both of those languages. So it seems, now you don't want to base it, I don't want to base a doctrine on a hopox that's used one time that's based on, on uh, an obscure usage somewhere, but it seems like there's no indication this word means strive. There's no evidence for that anywhere. The only evidence is that this word means abide. And that, in conjunction with uh, what we know from Enoch, what we know the Garden of Eden is still present on the earth, that Eden was a garden east of, it was built, God planted a garden east of Eden, Eden being the visible presence, residence of God on the earth. And the cherubim were set with the flaming swords to keep man from entering. It seems to suggest that the environment of the earth was so radically different before the flood 
that God had a visible physical presence on the earth. So that's the second stage of what is called the theocratic kingdom. And that ends at the flood. And then there's no presence of God on the earth until the Shekinah glory descends on the Ark of the Covenant on Mount Sinai with the inauguration of the nation of Israel and the age of the law. And then you have the physical presence of God until it's removed from the uh, temple when Ezekiel sees it leave just prior to the invasion of the Babylonians in uh, 586 B.C. That's the second stage. Then God leaves the earth. There's no presence of God on the earth from 586 B.C. until the incarnation of Jesus Christ in approximately 4 B.C. Jesus Christ ascends to heaven. He is replaced by God the Holy Spirit who then makes His temple. See, from the before the fall until the flood, there is a temple of God on the earth. So it's the temple in quotes. In Eden. There's a, he's present in the temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and temple in the age of the law. And now what? You are that temple. We as the church are that temple. God makes us a temple. And then that temple is removed at the end of at the end of the church age when the church is uh, has their exit resurrection. To heaven, and it is not until then. Then there's a seven-year period where there's no visible presence on the earth. Now, all of this is referred to in different ways as the kingdom of God, but it but it is not the same as the Davidic or Messianic kingdom that comes in at the end of after the second advent. It is this kingdom of God relates the spiritual sovereign rule of God over the affairs of man, believer and unbeliever in all of those ages. Believer and unbeliever. So this first meaning of the day of the Lord relates to specific interventions of God over the earth. Now he is, during this age, we have the temple of God related to the church, but this is called the mystery form of the kingdom. The mystery form of the kingdom. In the mystery form of the kingdom, we have a visible Christendom, a visible church. But the visible church is made up of believer and unbeliever alike. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the sower, the parable of the leaven, the parable of the mustard seed, all in Matthew chapter 13. It's the mystery form of the kingdom. So there is no direct rule of God during this age. It is not until we... we are removed as the church that God begins to reassert His direct rule and that occurs in the tribulation. That's why it's called the day of the Lord. God is beginning to intervene in history in order to reestablish His rule on the earth. That's point one. Point two, non-technical meaning of the word is simply God demonstrating His authority over Gentile nations in judgment. So the term day of the Lord is used sometimes in a non-technical way just to relate to his authority over Gentile nations in judgment. But more often than not, the word is used with a technical sense, and it refers to an event in the future when God is going to intervene in the tribulation 
to judge the Gentile nations, to discipline Israel, and to bring in his messianic kingdom. It's a time of vast destruction, and it comes on us unannounced like a thief. Comes on us unannounced like a thief in the night. Zechariah 12, 2 through 5 is a central passage on this. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. All the peoples refers to the Gentiles. Jerusalem is going to much more, be much more of a problem then than it is now. We, think, we just think Jerusalem and Israel is a problem now. This is a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. When the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment. Of course, it talks about horses and riders because that's what they knew at the time Zechariah wrote, though this would refer to any form of, of uh, military transportation. I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah and I will, while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Notice he will protect Judah because they're following the, the uh, admonition of, the, of Jesus in Matthew 24 to, when they see these signs to leave, and they're headed for Basra. Not Basra down the road here in Connecticut. just want to see if anybody's still with me. Um, I will strike every horse of the people with blindness. So God is going to cause confusion in the ranks of the Gentiles. This would be the army of the, of the Antichrist, the king of the north, the king of the east, as they are converging on Israel during the tribulations, the four armies, king of the north, south, east, and west, are all converging. God is going to bring confusion on the ranks. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of armies, their God. And it is at that point that uh, that represents their repentance, that is their change of mind, and their turning to the Lord for deliverance. There are numerous other passages to get into on the day of the Lord. It's a crucial concept, so we'll come back, review this a little bit next week, and continue our study of the various terms that are used for the tribulation and then go through just a brief overview of the events of the tribulation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to be made aware of the fact that... that, uh, there will be tremendous accountability and judgment in history and that you will bring all things to completion. And Father, as we look forward to your coming, we are uh, grateful that as the church we will not go through this horrible time. But we know that this is a time where, where as many have prayed throughout the ages, where is the Lord who brings discipline and judgment on the unrighteous, that this is the time when that, that is all brought to completion and the nations are judged, and Israel is disciplined and brought to a place of repentance and so and true acceptance of Jesus as Messiah. So, Father, we just uh, thank you for the fact that we gain confidence, we gain hope, and we gain comfort from our study of these passages. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.